I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host. And my guest this week is a chap called Roderick Yap. You can contact him on his website, which is leadershipforces.com. He's at Twitter at leadershipforces, but it's instead of F-O, it's number four, R-C-E-S, and that's on Twitter. Just Google him. You're going to find him. He's been quoted a lot. He's published content. He's done quite a lot of talks. In fact, we met at TEDx in 2016, I think. And then we're reintroduced by someone else. And I suddenly realized that name's familiar. And then it came to me that we'd actually shared the stage at TEDx, which is cool. But he's an ex-Royal Marine, having completed many tours and high-level appointments before finally leaving as a captain. Uh, He's into rugby, football, cycling, reading. He's a motivational speaker. If you Google the TEDx talk, you'll see why, all about double loop learning. We may or may not touch on that in this conversation. And he's also the founder of a company called Leadership Forces, as I mentioned at the outset. It's a business that develops leadership skills and creates high-performing teams. Rod, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. It's good to speak to you again. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, so we've got quite a bit we want to talk about, but I think what piqued my interest and may do with many of our listeners is your background in the Marines. Can you give us a sort of a quick tour, uh, pun intended, on your career there and how it got you into what you do now? Sure. So I joined the Royal Marines in 2005, really when I sort of look back at it because I think I just wanted to be challenged. And I looked at it like kind of every other graduate scheme and said, well, now giving me the opportunity to lead 30 men after 15 months of training, you know, many people that takes years to get to. So I saw it as the sort of steepest development path, if you like. I joined in 2005, I passed out of training in 2006, and then I deployed to Afghanistan in 2007, where I was based in Sangin, and basically going out and leading troops on the front line, being shot at by the Taliban day in, day out, or dealing with Mm. improvised explosives devices. And actually, it was a real sort of highlight of my career. It was a really positive experience for me. How so? So I should interrupt you, but... No, so I think that the world that we live in, certainly in the West, is sort of very, very complex. There's always just a lot going on. When I was in Afghanistan, I really had a very simple existence. I was basically either going out on patrol and fighting or I was doing a bit of exercise in the camp on some form of watch duty or I was eating, sleeping or looking after my equipment. And there was something sort of quite satisfying about that. And I knew that I was experiencing something that very few people in the modern world would get the opportunity to experience. And I just felt lucky in many respects to sort of have that. And it was that's really why I think of it as such a positive experience. Mm. Okay, cool. So you, you were saying? Yeah, so I, after serving in Afghanistan, 
the other sort of things that I did during my time in the Marines. I was crashed out to Libya on board HMS York to get civilians out of Benghazi when the Gaddafi regime collapsed in 2011, which was interesting because that was completely unexpected. Mm. And then towards the end of my time, I specialized in counter piracy and did a couple of tours off the coast of Somalia, leading the recapture of a 55,000 ton container ship called the MV Monte Cristo. So if you Google my name, that tends to be the thing that sort of pops up. It was, yeah, that was also cracking, really, really lucky to get involved in such a unique experience and rescue some mariners who were at the mercy of some Somali pirates. Mm. Those guys ended up in prison in both the Seychelles and in Rome because it was an Italian flagged vessel. So that was a pretty good outcome overall. Yeah. And that was basically it. I mean, my, I left the Royal Marines in 2012 for kind of three quite distinct reasons. I got married in my final year. I wanted to have children, but I wanted to spend more time with them. In 2012, I knew that we'd be pulling out of Afghanistan within a few years, and I just saw that the military would be left fallow for a period of time. I didn't really want to serve when I'd sort of had that experience that I had. I didn't really want to serve in a peacetime military. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I think the jobs really behind me looked better than the jobs ahead of me, so I knew it was sort of time to leave while I was still enjoying it. Mm. And yeah, so I left there 2012, then went and worked in the nuclear industry for a couple of years, which is what got me sort of operational excellence and people development, which is largely what I do now. Mm. Let's talk about that, because I imagine in the military, whilst it's a very hierarchical structure, and I'm sure for good reason, it's all about people, isn't it? It's all about, at least I would think, getting a group of people behind an idea, behind a vision, behind a mission. How practically can you, because I know quite a few people in leadership and they are often ex-military. What's the natural transition, do you think, between one and the other? Or is it natural? The military is one of those few organisations out there that really understands that all they have is their people. That is kind of the key thing. And they really are willing to invest in them. So typically in other organisations, leadership development is reserved for the people at the top of the hierarchy. Mm. In the military, it's sort of decentralised. So every Royal Marines officer goes through 15 months of training up front And that sort of sets the context and sets the tone really, really well. And although, yes, it is a sort of hierarchical organization, an officer, you know, has the capacity to give orders and tell people what to do. By and large, it just doesn't really work like that. It works more on the sort of currency of trust. And you sort of work that out really quickly. The guys trust you if you demonstrate that you have their best interests at heart, if you're willing to look after them, if you're willing to work for them. So you sort of, you invest in that relationship and you get it back in turn. And I think that's a model that works really, really well in the civilian world as well. I mean, well, let's let's actually just touch on your personal experiences because you must have had some, some harrowing and certainly challenging times. What has that done to inform some of the leadership training you do now? I mean, I guess resilience is something that's much talked about in leadership circles and HR and so on. And you've obviously had to build and develop a huge amount of resilience. So to what degree do some of your experiences inform the work that you do now? Uh, So enormously. I think my thinking on on leadership and resilience, and I'll deal with those two sort of separately, has, has evolved significantly since I left the military. And when I first sort of kind of sort of started to get into this world, I, you know, I read lots of leadership books to sort of try and understand a little bit more. And what I found with most of them were that people were sharing a model or an approach that was based on their experience. And whilst I think that's helpful, I don't think that 
for example, my experience in Afghanistan is necessarily relatable to the experience of, I don't know, running an accounting firm, for example. And what I believe is that, that leadership is all about behaviour, but behaviour is fundamentally context-dependent. So when a lot of people will come to me and say, you know, I think leadership is all about, you know, we want to empower our people, we want to put decision-making right down to the lowest level – by and large, I absolutely agree with that. 99% of the time, that works really well. However, if you and me were to walk across the road in London and watch someone get hit by a car, the appropriate response for the leader or someone in a position is not to turn around and go, you know, how would you feel about calling an ambulance now? Sure. That's the time where that model doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it requires close command, a grip of that sort of situation. So I think those sort of simple models are, are helpful but actually leading the right behavior to match the context that you're yep. faced with. That's ultimately what it's all about. And that's what I try and help people do. So I help them to understand themselves, how they naturally respond to various situations, help them develop a level of self-awareness, and then help them choose the right response to match the context. And it's ultimately about improving judgment, not teaching people how to do things, if that makes sense. Mm. Interesting. And at what level of leadership are you typically talking to? I work at all levels, really. It really depends on on the size of the organisation, what they are. I don't think that I have perhaps enough grey hairs to sort of coach leaders at the very senior FTSE sort of 100 organisations, only 37. But I, it tends to be throughout the hierarchy. It kind of depends what the challenge is and, and where they want to bring me in at. Okay. So you've touched on, I'm just thinking some of the, the attributes of leadership, trust. So it sounds like it's a lot of it's about empowering people to make the right decision at the right time, which you can completely see how that relates to being in any aspect of the military. I mentioned resilience. What part does that play in it for you? So resilience is one of these things that I think is, you know, there's a real sort of demand for this now. I think mm. more and more people, as I know you you are aware of, are struggling to cope with the modern world. and I think in the military, this is something that we got wrong to be really direct about it. I think that in the run-up to Afghanistan and Iraq, we, we understood the need for a soldier to be physically fit and able to do their job, but we didn't really pay as much attention to mental fitness. And things like post-traumatic stress and, you know, these things that have new, you know, Vietnam veterans suffer with a really, really high level of post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I think we were found a little bit wanting in that area. And I think people really, really suffered as a consequence because we hadn't prepared them adequately. Yeah. I see some of those challenges that sort of people face in, in the modern world. I see people, you know, not getting enough sleep, not looking after themselves, burning out, working straight through the weekends. And I see them doing that in a way in order to sort of get a bit of a competitive advantage over other organizations and sometimes over, over their peers within a business. And I just think it's completely unsustainable. I just don't think it leads people to a happy place. So it's an area that I've started to sort of do a bit more work in and I'm keen to do more of, really. Yeah. My observation is that we're living lives that are so far removed from ancestral times. And that's evolution. And there's lots of good stuff that we've evolved to be able to do. But the pace of life is a stark contrast from the pace we'd have had before. You know, I know, I know you know this, but we look at the nervous system sympathetic and parasympathetic and sympathetic being fight flight parasympathetic rest and digest i know a lot of listeners will know this we spend too much time now in sympathetic dominance so that puts a huge amount of strain on the body in terms of hormones like cortisol 
a depletion of other hormones like testosterone, which is linked with energy, which also affects virility, of course. That impacts sleep. Sleep can impact hormones that affect body composition. And, you know, before you know it, we're tired, we're sluggish, we're overweight, really struggling to deal with the pace of life. I think there's so many good things that have come from the way we've evolved, but we need to start. The irony is we've been using technology, aren't we, to take a step back and find time to breathe. And I think resilience is not a term I'm particularly keen on. I use it because it's the one that people resonate with and everyone knows what we mean when I say resilience. But personal sustainability, I suppose, is another way of putting it. I don't know. And what are your thoughts on on the term resilience? Are you keen on it? You know, I think it it gets the message across, doesn't it? I think you kind of have to go with the sort of common language that people have. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a helpful term, but in the same way that I don't think leadership is a particularly helpful term. I have a concept. I have an understanding of what that means, and you know, as do you. But it means so many different things to so many different people. To me, it's a little bit like the word religion, right? Religious can mean my mother going to church on the weekend, but it can also mean you know a jihadi blowing themselves up on the tube. So it's a sort of it's an enormous spectrum. The word means so much. A kind of almost means nothing, mm-hmm. which is why I sort of defer to, I guess, behavior, because I think it's an easier thing for people to grasp almost. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, talking about that, when you entered into the Marines, what did your resilience have to, was it built on pretty quickly? Did you have pretty good resilience? I mean, what is the key to acquiring it in your view? That's an interesting question. So I think I would have described myself as reasonably resilient before I joined the Corps. You know, I went through some, you know, as, as lots of people have done, you know, my parents divorced at 13, went through some fairly challenging sort of personal circumstances. And I think that gave me a confidence about my ability to cope. But then when you're going through difficult training, and Royal Marines training is extremely demanding, you sort of realize that actually, I can manage this, I can do a little bit more. And I think that the, I see in the sort of modern world is that is that people want to become more resilient, but they don't necessarily want to pay the price, which is often going through some demanding times Mm. and learning how to sort of rephrase those. Mm. So when we'd be doing a sort of long route march in the Marines when I was training, I had this sort of mental model that I kind of applied, which was if you give up within the first third, you haven't given it everything, so just keep going. And then once you get to that third, whatever that looks like, and you're taking a complete guess here, well, everything you've done up to this point is a complete waste of time if you quit. And that, as a sort of mental model, uh, sustained me through my training. And I think everyone finds something like that. They find something that works. It's not really why you join the core that counts. It's why you stay and last through training. And I think that's very individual to, um, to every person. Yeah, there's a, a real popularity now in both programs about, you know, the SAS, Who Dares Wins, and there's a program now yeah. about paratroopers at the moment as well. And events like Tough Mudder, there's hugely popular events like that, where you can kind of put yourself through almost military style training, but obviously just for a one isolated event. And I think one of the reasons why they're becoming really popular is that whilst I, I don't contradict what I've just said about the fast pace of life and the challenges, we're not being physically challenged in that same mm. way, in quite a primitive way. And I think that's why we're seeing these events become so popular. I'm trying to persuade, well, my oldest friend actually, to come and do one of Bear Grylls survival camps up in the Highlands for five days with me. I am desperate to do it, to just put myself <laughs> through it and see see what it would be like. Because you know, whilst I think I'm quite resilient, I also worry that I haven't really been tested. Now, I don't want to invite trouble. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. 
And I think that kind of thinking is why we put ourselves through some of those tough mother type events, because in a lot of respects, we've got it quite comfortable now, not you because of your experience, but I think some of the concern about resilience is people aren't sure if they've got it or not. And then it's been tested in wrong ways. It's been tested in sort of how hard can you work, how long can you work, rather than in a broader sense. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think I I absolutely agree with that. I think comfort can be a bit of a dangerous thing. Mm. You know, too much comfort sort of insulates you. And I I was thinking about this, you know, before we had this conversation. And the way I sort of think about these things now is, is that people are not very good at understanding the difference between what hurts and harms them. So exercise, for example, can often be quite painful, you know, whether you're lifting heavy weights or going for a run and sort of testing your ability. That's painful and it hurts, but it doesn't harm you. Actually, it makes you stronger. Whereas, you know, someone turns up with a sort of Krispy Kreme donuts and dumps them down in the office. Those feel good, but they harm you. Yeah. And I've listened to a few podcasts you know, with, with sort of people like Jocko Willing. Can he sort of reframe the donuts in the office as, you know, those are poison. Think of them as poison and you'll think of them differently. And I quite like little techniques like that because I do think they're helpful. Yep. I want to touch on, I'm kind of time, I want to just touch on something. When we met the other week, you drew a triangle for me, which yeah. sort of embodied some of your ideas and personal values. I think I'd, I'd like to touch on that because what I found interesting about your stories, you've obviously come from the Marines, you've, you've been out on tours and sang in various other really dangerous places. Now you've moved into leadership consultancy and speaking and so on. And you've almost redefined, haven't you, your own version of success, pushed the ego aside a bit and said, actually, that's what I want to be doing. This is what really lights me up. And yep. it's all about your own, your purpose. Can you share that with us? Yeah, sure. So where this came from was, I read the book, sort of Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And I sort of started thinking about the concept of the end of my life. You know, what does a good life look like? And I started to sort of work backwards from there. And I realized that when I started my own business, I kind of had an opportunity to sort of go back to first principles. And there was a film, some of your listeners might remember it, called Kingdom of Heaven, when there's a moment in it where Orlando Bloom, the main character, is asked what that says in his, in his carpentry shop. And it says, what man is a man who doesn't make the world a better place? And I remember watching that and that really resonating with me. I remember it sort of hit me really quite hard. And I started to think about, okay, well, if that's sort of something that's clearly important and resonates with me, how do I do that? The question becomes how? And I know that, you know, from talking to lots of people, that there are many people that are not particularly happy in their jobs. And I started to think about why that is and kind of ask them those questions. And, and by and large, it, relate, it revolves around the fact that they have a difficult working relationship with their manager or their boss. You know, when you sort of dig into that problem, you realize that, that actually that's that's not their manager's fault, okay? Often they've been promoted because they're good at something and now they're given a team, but they're never given any really sort of quality leadership or management training to help them make that team successful. So the relationship falls down and things start to break up. And, and you know, if four out of five people don't like what they do for a living, that's a lot of very unhappy people. And I think that that is largely down to the fact that leadership training and development is simply not good enough Mm -hmm. so if i can contribute in some small way to sort of improving that then that's going to be the focus of my business and discovering that was actually really quite powerful because i came across that notion was like well do you know what if my business fails so long as i stay in that area 
you know, that's a good win for me. I don't mm-hmm. really mind if I do that for someone else and I can, you know, make their organization successful. I'll be really happy with that. It's quite rating because it feels like I'm not sort of carrying the same amount of risk because I enjoy doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And then, you know, this is a bit more personal, but, you know, when we met, I sort of spoke about my father being divorced three times, married four times. And I do think about that. And I think of the sort of, you know, wake that that leaves in terms of people behind it. And so I was very clear that I don't just wear a sort of businessman's hat. I'm not just an entrepreneur. I'm a father and a husband. And I need to pay attention to those roles as well. They are equally important. So I'm very, very clear that my business and everything that I do professionally supports my family, not the other way around. So I'm pretty good about keeping the boundaries, you know, in the evenings and the weekends. You know, one of my uh, organizational KPIs is do I see my children twice a day in the morning and in the evenings? And that just helps to sort of make sure that I've got the balance. It's not unforgiving. Of course, I travel like loads of sort of entrepreneurs from time to time, but it just sort of keeps me honest and makes sure that I'm wearing, you know, the husband hat, the provider hat and the father hat sort of equally, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It does. I mean, the last bit of the triangle is, is that, you know, I think you lead at home as well as you do in the office. And I've already spoken about sort of leadership is done by your behavior and the example you set. And so it starts to become a question about, you know, what sort of example am I setting both at home and with the people that I work with? I can talk a good game about behavior change, but can I do it myself? Can I lead by example? So I have this sort of this approach of sharpening the saw, I call it. So while most people are spending most of their days chopping down the tree, I'm apportioning a bit of my time to getting better tomorrow, knowing that that has a compound interest effect. So things like listening to podcasts, reading, working out five, six times a week. I live a fairly brutal existence because I get up at five o'clock, but getting up at five o'clock is easy if you go to bed early. You know, I get up to meditate, work out, and frankly, all of these things I think will have a compound interest effect and help make me better at what I do and a better father and a better husband. So that's kind of what I'm working towards. Yeah, love all that word. And I think bringing it back to resilience, putting yourself first in certain contexts. So basically what you're doing, same as me, is making sure that your body's been exercised, that you're getting appropriate rest and recovery, meditation. Mm-hmm. You're exercising the mind in terms of consuming lots of content on podcasts, reading books. And by the way, you can leverage some of those things, can't you? You know, you can listen to a podcast while working out. Absolutely. Not necessarily reading and working out. I'm not a huge fan of that, but you can leverage this kind of stuff. And for me, a key part of my active recovery is walking. And I can definitely listen to a podcast or an audio book. I've tried, but didn't get on with Audible. Either way, you can have content going into your ears at the same time as moving. So you can leverage and stack a lot of this stuff. So I think that idea of putting yourself first in a certain context so that you're fit, happy, mentally and physically nourished to then be that entrepreneur, that husband and that father. And I think also being conscious of your other roles and it is not all in work is a, is a key message to take from this as well that it isn't all about work. You've also got to prioritize home time and prioritize obviously being a good husband. And I think that's excellent advice for anyone listening in and a key part of resilience. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that when you're on a plane and they say that, you know, when the oxygen masks fall for this, fall from the ceiling, you've got to put yours on first. I think that's kind of quite a nice metaphor. Mm. Because if you want to help other people, you've got to look after yourself first. 
And equally, people sort of sense this. I mean, I'm selling myself and my business as a former Royal Marine and a behavior change expert. It's not going to look good if I'm sort of 50 pounds overweight and I can't control my own behavior. So I sort of think of all of those kind of things as, I guess, reinforcing. I look after myself. I take on sort of good quality content. All of that feeds back into the way I run my business and some of the things I share. I guess I'm very conscious of this all having a kind of compound interest effect. I don't really need to earn that much money to be happy. I've had a higher disposable income and I've had a lower disposable income. And when you have a higher disposable income, you know, I've had a nicer car, but after three weeks, it becomes the new normal. Mm. So I'm not really that fussed about those kind of things. I just much rather enjoy what I do and be able to be there for my wife and my family. Yeah. Brilliant. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I think for me, the key thing that you said there is, is about how you create space for all the different roles in your life and look after yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, if you like, so that you've got the bandwidth to be able to deal with things that, that life throws at you. I think a lot of people are seeking the answers to how can I cope with more? How can I be more resilient? It's simply working on basics, actually, working out active rest, prioritizing recovery, which could be bath, meditation, chill out time, time with your kids, anything like that. And then having a very clear sense of purpose and personal values, which you clearly do have. I think that's an absolute, you know, if you can get all of those things right and together, that does enable you to live a full, fulfilling, happy life, fulfilling a purpose, resilient, able to deal with some of the things that life throws at you. So Rod, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. No worries. Pleasure to speak to you. So just again, leadershipforces.com is Rod's website, at leadership, but not forces. It's the number four RCES on Twitter. You're an open connector on LinkedIn, I think. And obviously, if you just Google Roderick Yap, Y-A-P-P, you'll find plenty on Rod. So Rod, thanks again. Thanks very much, Liam. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.